The following audio is from a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Acts, chapter 10, verses 34 through 43. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with the power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Through his name. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, it is a busy morning today, as you've already picked up on. I don't have much time, but I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge um, God is doing something great at our church, something really special. He's been answering a lot of our prayers, bringing people to faith, people getting baptized. Um, We had two weeks ago the largest. Porterbrook class that we've ever had. Over 80 students have joined Porterbrook Quad Cities. That was a fantastic weekend. Had a friend of mine in from Chicago, kind of blew us away, I think, on, um, on Saturday. And then this last week, or yesterday, we had the first ever Merge Women's Conference. And, well, I thought I'd hear a little more than that, but it's fine. <laughs> I really enjoyed it, so... Uh, no, the first ever women's merge conference was yesterday. Had almost 100 ladies over at Sacred City Moline. And uh, I thought they'd all be wearing their shirts today, but you know they, they missed it on that one. Uh, but no, I've heard nothing but great things about that. I think that's something we're probably going to continue to do and see what the Lord does. And so it's just really, I just feel really blessed to be your pastor and really thankful uh, that God's raising up people within our church to lead these things. And uh, I get to do what I enjoy doing, and that's preaching the word of God. So let me pray and let's get after it. Father, I do thank you this morning um, to stand before your people and to deliver this message. And I ask that you would hide me behind this pulpit and behind your word, that I don't want to share my own opinions and my own ideas. Um, I am a man. Uh, I'm a man of my time. And so my ideas don't la- won't last very long. But your word has stood the test of time. Um, and so we, we put our hope and put our trust in you and in your word. Um, would you speak through me this morning? Would you think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords? Would it be all of you and very, very, very little of me? And would you help your people hear your voice through this sermon and through your servant this morning? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, if you're just joining us, we have been going line by line through the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed is an ancient summary of the Christian faith. It's a great primer on what Christians have believed for the past 2,000 years. 
And I hope over the past few weeks, if you've been with us, you've learned some new things, maybe learned some depths of our faith. Uh, And I hope you've also found your affections for Jesus stirred. I know that I personally have. And really what we've been doing is we've been studying Christian doctrine. And the dirty secret in most churches is that doctrine is cold, lifeless, and boring. Except that it's not, right? Except the reality is the exact opposite of that. That dynamite to me is like, or I mean, sorry, doctrine to me, I gave it away. (laughs) Doctrine to me is like dynamite, right? It just needs a preacher who believes it and loves it enough to light the match. That's what I hope to do this morning. But my task is not easy. I can, from my vantage point, I get to see the finish line. I know where I'm going to try to take us this morning. Uh, But because I can see the finish line, I also see uh, many obstacles that stand in our way from where we are now and where we need to be. And let me just acknowledge some of those right away. Today we are looking at the line in the creed that says... Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. Or in the, some of the old English versions, it says he will come to judge the quick and the dead, which just sounds cool. <laughs> quick like quicksand or quicksilver, it means living, moving, active. Now let me acknowledge right away that this is, without a doubt, the most unpopular doctrine in Christianity in our society right now. Many have supposedly adopted Christianity and thrown this doctrine out the window and they no longer believe it to be real or true or good. Liberal college professors have taught us that it is primitive or even evil to think of God actually coming down to judge and smite people. It's somehow beneath a good God, to do gross things like that. What I want to do this morning is to show you how wrong they are and how you, deep down, really, really, really want God to come down and judge. It's actually what we want and it's it's what we need if we're ever going to get the world that we all long for. But before I get into the why, let me briefly state the what. The words of the creed are taken directly from our scripture that was read this morning from Acts chapter 10, 34 through 43. Peter, he's preaching his second sermon now, which is essentially a second Pentecost because the Holy Spirit gets poured out again. Peter preaches the gospel, and and in the contents of the gospel are all the things that we come to expect. Jesus was uh, the son of God. Jesus did great miracles. Jesus was a good man. Jesus was attested by all. He was seen by all. He was a historical reality. Jesus then was crucified. Jesus then was resurrected, right, so that we could be forgiven of our sins, and we could have peace with God. Peter includes all these, but then in verse 42, he says this, and Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So Jesus isn't just the savior of the world. He's also the God-appointed judge of the world. 
Jesus said this himself in Matthew 25, which we, if we had more time, I would love to go and go verse by verse through Matthew 25 because Jesus goes into great detail on what's he going to do when he comes back. And also, you're not gonna get enough information about the last judgment. We preached a whole series in the book of Revelation last year. You can go back and you can, find, you can get caught up there. But Jesus says he's going to come back in glory and all the angels with him to sit on his glorious throne and judge the world. He says someday in the future, he's going to separate people into two categories who he calls the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, or believers on the right, unbelievers on his left. The evil will go, the evil will go to eternal punishment and the righteous into eternal life with God. These are the words of Jesus. So the reality of the judgment day is attested by the book of Revelation, by the words of Jesus himself, by Peter, after, after they've seen the resurrected Christ in Acts, and it's all the same. Jesus is going to come back to judge the living and the dead. Now, that's the what. Here are, here's three reasons why I think we actually want this to be true. We actually want there to be a judgment day. One, because there is a judgment day coming, that means evil has an expiration date. We all want to live in a world without the curse of sin and evil. We long for a perfect world where no one has to double check their doors at night. Well, judgment day is really just demo day on evil. This is the analogy that I use from the when we went through the book of Revelation. Think of it like this. Our world is a broken down house. Very few people would argue with that fact. Honestly, we see the headlines, right? We see what's in our news feed every day. But we don't really know just how deep that brokenness goes. One word for sin in the New Testament and specifically in the book of Romans is corruption. We and our world have been corrupted See, when you go in to renovate an old broken down house, the first thing you do is really judgment day. You go in and you rip stuff off the walls and you kick things and you touch things and you hit things and you check beams and you check boards. You go in to determine just how deep does the corruption go. What walls need to be taken out? Are the beams corrupted by termite damage? Has mold gotten into the walls? Obviously, the deeper the corruption goes, the deeper your renovation has to go, and the deeper your demo has to go. Now, when you do this, obviously, you're not judging, right? You're, you're not going in and judging these things because you're cruel or you're mean. Look at that guy. He's just destroying that house. Just wait a minute. Just wait a, actually, wait a month. Give me a month at least, right? You're doing it because you want the renovation to be thorough. You don't want to just slap new paint on the walls or lay down carpet or put up tile and then a month down the road, the house collapses. The same is true when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead. He is going to rip out and destroy all of the corrupt. And he's going to renew and restore everything that can be restored. Don't we want him to do that with this world? If he doesn't, we can never have the world we were made for, a world without sin, a world without sickness, a world without brokenness, and without corruption. 
So one, I think we want Jesus to come and judge the living and the dead because we want evil to have an expiration date. Secondly, we want Jesus to come judge the living and the dead because we want to live in a just world. If there's no judgment day, Hitler got away with it. We know there's some things that deserve a recompense worse than death. To to commit atrocities and then put a bullet in your head that doesn't seem fair, that doesn't seem just, that doesn't seem right. Now, Now this part is a little unnerving. Jesus because he is the son of God and he knows all and he sees all, he judges with a perfect justice. He can't be bribed or deceived in any way. The apostle Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. When the Lord comes, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. That means Jesus can see into our hearts. He knows the heart-level motivations of every person that walks this earth. Now, what does that mean? It's a little unnerving, but it's also got some good news to it. One, it means the hypocrite, the religious prig, the pedophile priest, the one who looks really good on the outside and yet is secretly doing evil things on the inside or or in the darkness, that they will not get away with their sins. That Jesus is literally keeping a book, a record of their sins, a record of their deeds, and he's writing them down and one day they will stand before him and he will judge them for their sins. Now this is especially important for those of us who have ever been victimized you've been molested or raped or taken advantage of in some other way, we, we all know that somehow you have to heal from that. Somehow you have to get through it and you have to move on and you have to deal with it. And if you don't, it will negatively affect the rest of your life. It will haunt you the rest of your life. But everybody knows we have to do that and we have to move on. And many say, well, we have to forgive them. But how? How do you do that? How do you forgive someone who's taken advantage of you like that? How do you move on? Well, one way is to think about judgment day. No one is getting away with anything. God is going to judge them and God is going to restore you if you're in Christ. That can give you great hope. Otherwise, you will be tormented the rest of your life. And if you're like me, you will have images just replaying in your mind of how you can get back at them. What they deserve. And that, that desire in us is what creates cycles of violence in our world. One person victimizes and then the victim feels therefore justified to lash out at the victimizer and it creates this never-ending cycle of violence. Now Miroslav Volf, who is a Croatian, he taught at Harvard, I think, uh, He wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace. And to paraphrase, he says this, and I put it up there. It's a long quote. 
My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires, listen, requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis, and he was, uh, he was Croatian who witnessed his uh, people get raped and slaughtered and murdered. My thesis will be unpopular with many in the West, but imagine speaking to people as I have whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate? Why not? What will ever keep them from retaliating? I say this, the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, that idea will invariably die, like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. Tim Keller has commented, the only thing that will stop a person who has really been a victim is to say, there is a judge, but it's not you. There is a judge that no one will escape and it's not you. Unless that's at the very bottom of your heart, you're never going to live nonviolently in this world. If you think the idea of a judging God leads to more violence, that shows you haven't had much of it, much violence yourself. You've had a very comfortable little life. So the second reason we want there to be a judgment at the end time is we want this world to be just. The third reason we want there to be a judgment day is because we want our actions today to have real meaning and significance. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, for we must all appear, all, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now what this means is every single thing we have done today or we do today in our bodies is going to echo into eternity. That our choices today will go on and have meaning in eternity, in the afterlife, in the new heavens and the new earth. Our choices, our services, Jesus even said every cup of cold water we give to someone in his name will get a reward from Jesus. See, the fact that there's going to be a judgment day works itself backwards into today and give my life meaning. And knowing what the future holds for us helps us live our todays in light of that reality. See, we are a story-shaped people. We make sense of our world by answering some big questions. And this is how we find out how to live our best lives. Where did I come from? Scripture says you were created by God for God. Where am I headed? We're headed, 
headed to life with God. How's it all going to end? We're going to be judged first, the living and the dead. Everyone has some vision of the future and then therefore they live their lives out of that vision for the future. This is how we find the meaning in our lives. Now, here's what's so confusing. If you believe in scientific materialism, that all that exists is matter that can be studied through the scientific method, then we are just killing time on a planet that is doomed for extinction. If that's true and that's the end we're headed for, everything we do in this life is meaningless. But that isn't what Christianity espouses. Notice how the creed progresses from past tense to present tense to future tense. Jesus was born, past tense. He suffered, died, was buried, descended, rose, and ascended. All of that is history. Now Jesus presently sits at the right hand of God in power, ruling and reigning, interceding for us. This is his present activity right now as our king. But we look into the future when the creed says, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. See, what the Bible teaches is different from other world religions. Other world religions say the, the world is somehow secular and we just go through this great cycle of death and rebirth and all this stuff. The Bible says, no, 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 no. History is actually linear. And by the way, if there wasn't the Old Testament, there would be no study of history today. The Old Testament literally invented history, okay? They were the first religion to believe that history was progressive and it was linear and it was moving from a set point to a set future. It's moving out from creation towards judgment day, not extinction. And for the Christian, this day is actually going to be good. It's demo day on this broken down world and on our broken down bodies. The Apostle Peter says it like this in the book that bears his name. Chapter 1, verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, most of us, when we think of judgment, we think, I want to be absent that day. <laughs> right? Staying home sick. I'm calling in, having mom calling for me. I don't want to be there. But Peter says, that judgment day, the revealing, that means the unveiling. So what's that mean? That means when Christ comes back, we get to see him as he actually is. When Christ came the first time, he came in humility. He came with his glory in an earth suit, okay? And so this earth suit kind of, not, didn't really diminish his glory, but it hid his glory, okay? And then now he comes back the second time and he's glorified and he's bringing the glory with him and he's not just coming as a lowly teacher, he's coming as the king of kings and the lord of lords to judge the living and the dead. And this is going to give grace, more grace to the Christian. It's actually good. You don't want to miss this day. C.S. Lewis says this in this book, The Weight of Glory. In the end, that face, and he capitalized face. I love C.S. Lewis. In the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. 
The question we have to ask is, is what, what, what look are we going to get? That's the question that remains to be asked, answered this morning. The final question we need an answer to today is this. Here, here's the reality. I'm going I'm to try to close. I'm going to try to do this. If God sees my heart, if God sees all things, he's, he's, he's written down everything I've said, everything I've done, everything I've desired, everything I've wanted, everything I've hidden, everything I've done in darkness. He knows the terrible reality of my teenage years. That's concerning. He knows how selfish I can be right now. He knows the secret things I only whisper to myself in the car. He knows the hate I have for other drivers. It's deep. He knows me better than I know myself. And he's a just judge. There's no getting by his bench. There's no sneaking by. There's no deceiving him then how am I ever going to get through judgment day and into the grace that leads me into eternal life with God? My hope is not that I'm better than anybody else. My hope is not that there's Jeffrey Dahmers in the world and somehow that puts me up on a pedestal. What is our only hope in life and death? Turn to probably the famous scripture of all time, John chapter three. This was popular even before Tim Tebow put it on his face. <laughs> For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him, through Jesus. Now verse 18. Whoever believes in him believes in Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. How do we get, get out from under this judgment? Well, he says you have to believe in Jesus, that God sent Jesus to die for our sins and then Jesus somehow forgives us. Now, why is that the case? How is that the case? You can flip your Bibles over really quick to Romans chapter 3. Or, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. There is therefore now no condemnation. Now that word of condemnation, you need to think of a judge at his bench saying guilty, boom, and raining down the gavel and you getting the guilty verdict and you getting the punishment that that requires. But Paul here says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God, look, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Here is how he did it. 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Look, he condemned sin in the flesh. Whoa, what does that mean? Here's what it means. When you put your faith in Christ, you are now in Christ. What, that, what does that mean? That means for those who are Christians, those who believe the gospel, judgment day has already passed. Your sin was judged on the cross. The gavel came down. Guilty rang out in the courtroom. The death sentence was read. The death sentence was executed. And your punishment is in the past. Man. We have already had our judgment day. Jesus took the look of God's terror so that we could have his gaze of delight fall upon us. Jesus experienced the cosmic shame of the cross so that we could experience the cosmic glory of God in all its fullness. So on that final day, when Jesus Christ returns in glory to judge and to renew and to restore all things, he's going to renew and he's going to restore us as well. He's not judging our sins. He's renewing us. We don't have to fear the judgment of God because we've already been judged in Jesus on the cross. We've already died with Jesus. We've already been raised in the spirit. And on that day, Romans goes on to say in chapter eight, our adoption will be complete like we got to see. I almost didn't preach because Nick had a great sermon this morning on the doctrine of adoption. (laughs) Oh man. I've known him since he's 12, so I let him get away with that stuff. All right. In the new heavens and the new earth, we will get totally renewed and restored bodies, and we will get to walk with God again in a world without sin or evil. See, this is the end that we were all made for. This is why nothing else in this world will ever satisfy us. This is why you have such anxiety that you're better off than you thought you'd be. You've got more money than you thought you have. You got a better family than you thought you'd have, live in a nicer house, and yet you're still anxious. A billion dollars can't buy this happiness. A lifetime traveling the world would never be enough. In the words of the song from the greatest showman, all the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough, never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough, never be enough. Why? Why is the best this world have to offer still never enough? St. Augustine answered this question for us 1,500 years ago when he said in his book, The Confessions, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. We were made for God. Nothing on this side of glory will satisfy us. And so for those who have been made new in Christ, we say, come Lord Jesus and come quickly. Amen? And if you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can put your faith in him this morning. You can pray pray that prayer and ask him to come in and make you new. Help you believe in in Jesus and what Jesus has done for you. 
And for those of us who are in Christ and have believed and have been baptized, we are going to come this morning and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we're eating this until he comes again. And then we've got another meal coming when he comes again. I'll preach a whole other sermon on that one. Let me pray. Father, I am not ashamed that you are coming to judge the living and the dead. It's not a backwoods, archaic doctrine that needs to be thrown away or even could be. You told us you were coming. You sent your son. He came. It's a historical fact. He rose from the dead. It's a historical fact. You say you're coming again. I take that as a historical fact, even though it's coming in the future. I pray that you would give us faith to believe it. And Father, that, the, that we wouldn't be driven by fear, but hope. Hope that you are coming to judge this world and drive out evil and drive out sickness and drive out pain and drive out brokenness and restore the beautiful world that you gave us and restore us and give us new bodies to enjoy, enjoy you with. Father, I pray that anyone here, that they would uh, put their faith in you, they put their trust in you this morning and for the Christian that we would turn from our sin, even indwelling sin, things that are inhibiting our walk with you, we would confess those, repent of those, and come and seek more grace from the table this morning. And that like you do every single week, you meet us here because you are good and you are gracious. And so we thank you for this. I pray uh, right now that on the night that you were betrayed, you took the bread and you broke it and you said, this is my body broken for you. And you took the cup and you said, this is my blood that's poured out for the remission of our sins. So Father, we eat and we drink in faith this morning for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.